This is Real Talk, the Customer Insights Show with Jen Vogel. Jen and her guests share valuable information to help you understand your customers better. Available wherever you listen to podcasts, you can also ask Alexa or Siri to play Real Talk. This episode is presented to you by Vox Popme, the leader in video surveys. Here's today's episode. Hello, insights professionals, marketers, and everyone who wants to understand their customers better. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Real Talk, the Customer Insights Show. We are live on LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube, and the podcast version will be available on podcast channels later this week. So today, we're going to talk about businesses who want to grow and be successful. What are some of the strategies that can affect growth and what's the role of non-traditional business growth strategies? So that's what today's episode is all about. I am excited to chat with longtime friend Kristen Luck. With over 20 years of experience as a serial marketing measurement technology entrepreneur. Kristen's consulting practice Scalehouse focuses on non-traditional growth strategies for data-driven technology firms and market research companies, as well as emerging CPG direct-to-consumer brands and vice categories like cannabis and sex tech. Kristen is a longtime expert in the market research space and also the founder of Women in Research. Welcome, Kristen. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. So good to see you and have you on the show today. Really excited. Likewise. <laughs> so I have to ask first, what is a serial marketing measurement technology entrepreneur? <laughs> Clearly, it's someone that has a problem not creating businesses. That's the serial part. Uh, it's interesting. You know, I, I started out almost 25 years ago in my career in uh, traditional research. And then when when the dot-com boom hit and the tech se sector started sort of expanding within marketing insights and measurement, for some reason, I really gravitated toward that part of the business. And so I was really lucky to have been involved in businesses that were really sort of on the forefront of bringing technology into market research. My first business, OTX, was the first firm to do multimedia, full screen secure video online for movie studios and um, testing TV spots and trailers and then I built a data visualization platform, which was one of the first kind of data viz platforms that I ended up trying to decipher uh, and then joined my two business partners there to take decipher into the software licensing space. And we sold that business, which was a you know data collection platform. We sold that to Focus Vision at the end of 2014. So, so yeah, my whole career has really been in this sector for the most part. <laughs> Yeah, and I think like right now is certainly an exciting time to be it, an entrepreneur in the market research tech space. I mean, there's been a, a lot of movement happening with these different tech companies and companies going IPO and, um, you know, buying and selling and all the mergers and acquisitions over the years. Like it's a really exciting time to be a part of that space. For sure. I mean, when I first started out in this sector, I, I, you know, honestly, when I started my own business, I didn't know any other business owners at that time. There really wasn't venture capital and private equity money coming into this space at the rate that there is now, nor was there ever any discussion really about market research firms going to IPO. And we've seen just two of those in recent months, both Qualtrics and then Scent last week went public. So 
it's a, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting time to be on that side of the business. But also for me, you know, in my consulting practice that I have now, I also have my investment banking license. So I am working a lot in mergers and acquisitions and funding and growth strategies for, for earlier stage companies. And then also for companies that are looking to, to exit and sort of realize monetizing the business that they've built. So it's, it's been an interesting time to be in banking, to say the least. I bet. I bet. I remember when you were going for that license. That was a big, <laughs> that was a big undertaking. And now I'm sure you are really glad you have it. I am. You know, I don't, I, I think a lot of people don't know that my, you know, my degree in college was in journalism. I, you know, I did not, I was not a math lead or any kind of math major, nor did I take any business classes. And so when I, started my own businesses, you know, A, I had to kind of learn everything by doing and asking questions and making a lot of stupid mistakes, which is one of the reasons I launched Scalehouse, which is, hey, how can I help entrepreneurs not make the same mistakes that I made during my my career so they can scale more quickly? Uh, but when I went to go take my investment banking license, it was really like, you know, starting over from scratch. I mean, I, at that point, I had sold three companies. And so I knew the M&A process from a founder's perspective. Hmm. But you know, from a banker's perspective, there's a, a lot of rules and valuation calculations you have to know. And yeah, it was it was trying to say the least. I definitely cried a few times while I was studying. I'll, I'll admit that. <laughs> but I did pass all my exams the first time around. So, <laughs> well, that's a win, I think. <laughs> it is a win. There were some tears shed, but nobody was permanently damaged in the in the process of getting the license. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a win. Well, so in talking about Scalehouse and and some of the consulting work that your that your company is doing now, like how would you define what what you would consider a traditional growth strategy? Yeah, a traditional growth strategies to me are 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 more paid strategies, things that you're probably used to seeing. Like you know, if you look back at sort of traditional advertising, so TV, uh, radio. Uh, you know, uh, paid speaking gigs, uh, you know, things where you're really paying for, uh, uh, paying for, I guess, for coverage or for exposure. Uh, I think those are the types of advertising strategies that people are the most, um, you know, think of, that they think of the most when they think of a, of a growth strategy. From my perspective, like, I, and I know you and I are kind of the same elk, you know, we're always trying to spend as little little money as we can because we're trying to scale our businesses uh, and we're trying to get the most bang for our buck. And so when when I think of more non-traditional strategies, it's it's more things like content marketing, account-based marketing, uh, partnerships, um, in some cases collaborating with competitors, you know, things that you might not normally think about when you're thinking about growth strategies for a company and a lot of things that a lot of, I think a lot of folks hadn't, haven't considered in the past. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think the, um, <clears throat> the whole pay for play kind of approach, like those traditional strategies, I mean, they certainly work, they work for a reason, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And I think there's an expectation too of, being able to prove the value of those strategies and those are really easy to measure, you know, ad placement and you can track it, track it all the, uh, the attribution all the way to revenue. Whereas some of the other non-traditional strategies are, are a little bit more difficult to measure the impact. So it's tough to uh, balance. Um, I guess, I guess that would be my question to you, you know, how do you balance those traditional and non-traditional when there's an expectation to prove out the, although, as you know, I'm a total measurement freak. Like I love to measure everything. And if I yeah. can't 
you know, if I can't get a measure on something, I spend a lot of money on it. It makes me really nervous. <laughs> As you know, we've worked together in the past. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't think that all marketing and branding activity can be measured, nor should it, nor should there be that expectation. You know, that said, I look at paid strategies as more of like a short, short game strategy and things like content marketing, partnerships, collaborations, like those are longer game strategies. And you have to use a combination of the two if you really want to scale quickly. You can't just rely on one path to growth. You know, usually there's sometimes those intersect and they also iterate and change over time as your business kind of moves through the different stages of growth. So, but I'm a, I'm a fan of using both. You know, I'm not, I, I, I'm not an advocate for not spending anything on marketing, which I'm sure every marketing research company listening to this will be disappointed to hear because market research firms, and I'll say this for the record, are literally the worst at spending any money on marketing or research. I, it's fascinating to me. <laughs> I think you're right. It's uh yeah, it is an interesting space in terms of of yeah, what companies are willing to spend on marketing and and uh, I think there are some companies out there in the space that do it very well. Um sure. and uh but it is a balance of those traditional and non-traditional strategies that that really, you know, I think when it I mean from my perspective, I I'm the same as you like I if I can't measure it, I I really struggle with it. I, I kind of yeah. believe there is a way to measure almost anything, even if it's not, even if it, the metrics are a little bit looser. Um, but I think if you have really strong marketing, you know, CAC metrics and things like that in some of the more traditional strategies that are easier to measure, it can buy you a little bit of a leeway to play and to really like lean into some of those strategies that are harder to measure. Um, if you if it's working in one area, then you can you can have a little more freedom in to take some risks in some other areas. For sure. And I mean, I think that there are some categories that have been traditionally harder to measure, like PR, where we're coming up with new ways of measuring them and we have a better understanding of the impact because so much of that content and reach is online now. So it's it's really changing, you know, the way that people consume content and media has changed. And so because of that, I think we've got different paths to measurement than we have had in the past. Yeah, for sure. I've been spending a lot of time over the last uh, year or so thinking about implied attribution and, you know, seeing like <laughs> unexplainable spikes in your data. You know, when you just see all of a sudden there's a, a lot of new leads or a ton of web traffic that you can't really attribute to something directly. It's like, well, what were we doing on that day? Who was, you know, did somebody post something on LinkedIn or did somebody have a conversation with someone on, you know, some kind of other platform that wasn't necessarily related to our our strategy or a specific campaign? And can you attribute some some success to some of those things? So yeah, there's we, we kind of have to get creative in in determining where the where the success is coming from. For sure, for sure. We don't always know. I mean, we try we, we we try to be investigators, but it's it's sometimes it's challenging for sure. Yeah. Well, there is pressure to, you know, find what it is that can scale. So, you know, the the yes. kind of one-off successes are great and you need to have those sprinkled in, but what can what can we really scale? And so why why do you focus your you know, your consulting efforts on non-traditional strategies and do brands know that they should be using non-traditional strategies? Yeah, I mean, I focus on non-traditional strategies because it's what's worked for me and my businesses and I really believe in them. You know, I've, I've, I drink my own Kool-Aid and so, <laughs> uh, and I know how to implement those programs really successfully. Uh, I, I think that the receptiveness 
of those strategies varies by brand. Uh, and it's probably why I tend to work a little more with renegade brands. You know, I work in, you know, some direct to consumer brands, which, you know, are doing particularly well now with COVID times and people can't retail shop. And so there's more of a, a, more of a focus there. And I think they're more open to, to digital strategies that are a little more non-traditional. Uh, I do a fair amount of work in cannabis. Uh, cannabis is legal here in Oregon and in most of the Western U.S. at this point. And, uh, and so because of that, there, you know, I think a lot of folks, when they think about cannabis founders, they think of, you know, some old hippie in a pot field next door, you know, starting a business. Most of the folks that are running these cannabis companies now are like Wharton business grads. Like they understand the importance of marketing and marketing spend and, and they're open to new and different ways of doing things. And there's also a regulatory environment that they need to be really cognizant of. And so they can't use the same kind of advertising strategies either. And the same goes for any kind of vice category. You know, there's a lot of regulation around how you can how you can market your products. That's really interesting because you you kind of think, you know, that maybe a more non-traditional company, maybe it's not even right to describe them as non-traditional anymore. Yeah, um, but, probably but not. <laughs> until recently, maybe they would be forward thinking and, you know, trying all new things and taking these risks. But um, you don't think about the regulations that they're under and that that is a very different environment to be operating in. It is. You've got to be really careful. Um, and I think, what, you know, one of the challenges that a lot of these industries have, and particularly cannabis, is that the regulatory environment is it's pretty fluid. Um, there are things changing all the time. I mean, I've consulted for companies that have had to change their packaging on the fly three, four times within a year to meet new regulatory standards. And so imagine, you know, then having that in a marketing environment and, and that you really only have one sales channel, which is, you know, these these cannabis shops. Um, so, you know, every time you've got to go change the packaging in and out and, you know, there's, there's just some really interesting different marketing schemes there that, that I enjoy working on. But for me, and you probably know this about me, Jen, cause we've worked together in the past, but I love learning new things. And so whether it's a new category or a new marketing technique or a new way to scale a business, like I'm always like, I'm, I'm interested for sure. Yeah. yeah. I bet. And I bet it's really beneficial also for kind of all of your customers that you're kind of working in all these different um, verticals and with different types of companies. Like you mentioned before, like market research firms are the worst at spending money on marketing and market research and, you know, really, um, you know, focusing on those, some of those non-traditional strategies. Like what what do you think those companies could learn from the other companies that you're working with on embracing those strategies? Yeah, I think, you know, being open to trying new things. I mean, I think the good thing about non-traditional strategies is that they're low risk from a cost perspective. And so because of that, it's kind of easier to get people on board with trying them because there's not as big of a monetary risk as, you know, putting thousands of dollars through online ad placements or um, through, through buying advertising through other channels. And so, I, I think the one thing that is great about, you know, market research and customer experience folks is that they are super data driven. And so if they can see examples in other categories and industries where these strategies are working, then they are more receptive to trying them. Yeah. So I think, you know, having the experience of, hey, not only have I scaled my own businesses in this category, but I'm working in other categories where these strategies also work. I think that's a good validation for people to give them a try. Yeah, nobody ever wants to be the first to try something. 
I'm always game to be the first to try something, but yeah, it's harder to bring people along on that on that journey. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. And so, in kind of building these, um, you know, marketing strategies and and helping mm -hmm. these businesses to scale, how important is customer understanding on that journey? Oh, it's huge. I mean, I, I think in uh, I'm probably gone through this exercise like a million times, as I'm sure you have over the years done, you know, building out customer personas, understanding who your buyers are, buyer motivations are really important. You know, another, you know, growth strategy that I really employ a lot is just focusing on existing customer growth, which a lot of companies don't do. Like, I can't tell you how many engagements I walk into where I ask about churn, like, well, what's your churn rate or what's, you know, like how many clients are you bringing in a year? But, the, you know, because a lot of CEOs come to me and say, well, you know, I'm, I've got all these new clients I'm bringing in, but we're just not growing at the pace that we want to. And, you know, there's a lot of times there's this leaky funnel problem where people are coming in through the top of the funnel and they're becoming new clients and they do one or two projects and they go out the other end of the funnel because nobody's nurturing them and growing them. And so, one of the one of the first exercises that I do is I, I just do a year over year comparison, which is super easy. I mean, any CEO can do it on their own data. Uh, and I mean, I've seen churn rates upwards of 60 percent in companies where people said like, oh, no, our, our customers love us. You know, they love us and we've got, you know, great customer satisfaction, but they don't have any data. So maybe people are coming in and they're having a good you know first project experience or, you know, first buying experience. But then there's not any work being done to retain them. And when you think about the easiest ways to growth, and particularly if you're somebody who's ever worked in a sales role, you know, hearing that data is super heartbreaking because it's so hard to bring in new clients and it's so much easier to nurture and grow the existing clients that you have. So that's like my, my number one tip on customer experiences. Like, gosh, you want to treat your customers like gold because you want them to, you want them to be growing. And from a marketing spend, I mean, it's not only so much easier to grow an existing customer, it's so much cheaper than it is to acquire a new customer. And so if you're looking for scrappy marketing tactics to, you know, really in increase the efficiency of your marketing spend, it's, you know, growing your existing customers is, is where it's at. A hundred percent. And it's interesting because if you look at a lot of marketing strategies, like in, particularly in the organizations that I've come in and kind of done marketing reboots on, many times existing customers won't even be part of their marketing strategy. I mean, they don't, they just think like, oh, well, they came in, they were a customer and now it's up to the account manager or, you know, social media, whatever to do their job to keep them engaged. And that is, that is not the case at all. I mean, sure. the, you know, keeping them engaged throughout the whole life cycle and treating them just like as you would a new client, which is like, you've got to nurture and grow them and services feel loved and, 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 and that you value them as a client. Oh, it's so important. Sure. And so I guess like, what are some of the strategies that you would employ, you know, not just for, you know, certainly for understanding existing customers and customer satisfaction and understanding, you know, why people churn, um, but also some of the, the consumer insight you might do on the front end from a, you know, persona perspective and, and trying to understand prospective buyers. What are some of the tactics that you typically employ? Um, well, certainly doing research and that, that's, I know that's not going to go over favorably with anybody in a marketing research role, but <laughs> doing research, I think is a, is a big thing in terms of understanding your, your buyers. I mean, as you know, I'm a, I'm a evangelist for 
for video. I, you know, I do, I, you know, I do believe that the closer we can get to customers and potential buyers, the better. And I think that there's no more powerful way of understanding people's perspectives than hearing it in their own words. I think it just resonates more deeply with, with people. Um, and, and that's really critical. I think, you know, if you don't have that emotional connection to your buyer and you don't really understand what's motivating them, that's a very dangerous space to be in. Yeah, I think that's a theme that's come up quite often, especially over the last year or so, just about having empathy and like really kind of understanding your customer's challenges in a deeper way, um, yeah. be able to actually meet them with your products and services and, you know, really step into the customer's shoes and, and empathize with their problems is so crucial. For sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're it, it's more challenging now because we're living in this time of COVID where, you know, we're working from home a lot or, you know, we don't have the same kind of ac access to, uh, you know, ethnographic or face-to-face -face data as we used to. I mean, it's one of the funnier stories that I tell from the earlier stages of my career is, you know, I was working on a, um, a study for, uh, I don't know if I can say the brand, but it was for a, you know, basically for a room deodorizer product. And uh, it was being marketed really heavily toward pet owners. And, but it just wasn't selling. It wasn't selling to pet owners. The company couldn't figure out why. And so we ended up doing some on-site visits with pet owners to figure out why. And um, we, I remember we went, this is, you know, early on in my career, went to this woman's house and I think she had 25 or 26 cats. Um, yeah. So you're two, Jen, one of which is sleeping peacefully behind you. And he had nothing on this woman. Um, but you know, her house smelled really, you know, I mean, you could really smell the cat smell. She had no clue. She had no clue that her home smelled. And so because of that, you know, if you're not cognizant of the fact that you might have an animal odor in your home, you're not going to buy a product to get rid of it. That's so, so interesting. <laughs> you know, and it's something that would never come out in a regular survey, but, you know, in more of a conversational setting or in a setting where somebody's really telling you their story and, they're, you know, she loved her cat. She talked about them. She would never have admitted in a million years they still, they smelled. So, yeah. So, well, yeah, you, you got to get interesting into stories from the field. Yeah, right. I'm sure there's tons of those. And some company definitely figured that out at some point. I can I can picture a commercial for uh, a, an air freshener brand where it actually like turned their furniture into the pet to yeah. show that like, yes. so, yeah, that's so funny. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> pet owners were just oblivious. You know, I have four dogs, so I, I understand it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. We've got wild kingdom over here too. So. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping that my house doesn't smell now. Now that's all I can think about. But <laughs> I know. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. Every time like somebody gets in my car or comes to my house, I'm always like, does it smell like dog in here? Because I don't want to be like that woman who didn't know. Right. Yeah. Now I'm paranoid, but it's all good. <laughs> I'm glad I could be helpful, Jen. Right. <laughs> um, well, this has been really fantastic. Before we um, kind of wrap up our conversation about non-traditional growth strategies, I do want to, you know, uh, just touch on your um, currently campaigning for president of SMR Council, um, which is very <laughs> exciting. Current sitting president, uh, vice president of SMR Council, yes. and running for yeah. for president. So that's that's fantastic. Do you want to talk a little about that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've been an SMR member for over eleven years now. If you're not familiar with SMR, it's the, you know, the big global association that represents researchers 
um, and market researchers all over the, the world. Uh, I've been on council for six years now, the last two as vice president. And it's interesting, although the US is you know, the biggest region in terms of industry spend, uh, we've never had an American president. Um, and we've been really underrepresented on council overall, less than less than 10% of council typically comes out of the Americas, even though I think over 50%, 56% of the spend, I think it was the last number that I saw from SMR comes out of here. So, you know, A, I think it's important that, you know, we've got a, a more, di you know, diverse set of perspectives on council. Um, and, you know, secondly, I think I'm, I'm really compelled to give back to an organization that's been incredibly instrumental in my career. I mean, I don't think that I would have the, you know, kind of global business practice that I do today without having been involved in SMR and have met a lot of those folks along the way. And um, I also, I think I, I bring a unique perspective of how to navigate rough waters during turbulent times. You know, my first business, I launched, you know, right during the dot-com boom and managed to survive the dot-com crash and had a successful exit. Uh, my second business, you know, when, or I guess my third decipher, you know, we we hit the economic downturn of 2007 to 2009 just perfectly. And, you know, this last year I've been, you know, a scale house. We had our best year ever and in the middle of a pandemic, you know, just sort of unheard of. And so if I can bring that, you know, that that knowledge and, and that experience to, to SMR and help help bring that association and, and you know, forward, it, that would be super rewarding for me. And for me, you know, I think there's there's three key things that I'm I'm trying to bring into SMR. You know, the first is making sure that we're really truly a global association. I, you know, I get a lot of folks that say, oh, you know, um, how is it going to work with SMR being based in the Netherlands and you on the West Coast of the States? And my response to that always is, well, it absolutely has to work because if we're a global association, we need to be able to support our members and as such counsel from all around the world. And then, you know, secondly, is we, you know, we, we need to be, bring younger researchers in. Um, you know, we've not done a good job of cultivating sort of the next generation of, of research of researchers, and we need to do that. And along with that, we need to be opening our arms to data scientists and behavioral data providers, data as a service companies, uh, and making sure they understand the importance of, of ethics and, and respondent privacy. Those, you know, those are all important um, important initiatives that we really need to move forward uh, within SMR. Yeah, well, that's very exciting stuff for sure. It's I had no idea that the U.S. was so underrepresented as part of SMR. So that's it's really interesting. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, SMR originally started out as a European association, and then you know they pivoted uh, quite a few years back into a global association. But you know, I think that 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 branding. And that feeling that it's a European, you know, it's an association for Europeans has sort of stuck stuck with it. And hey, I'm here to I'm here to you know maybe break us out of that out of that branding loop. <laughs> That's fantastic. If anyone can do it, it's definitely you. So you. Uh, where can we go to support you in this uh, campaign? Well, you, you know, you can only vote if you're an SMR member. So you've got to go on to smr.org and become a member. And you know, and if you're in the a, you know, if you're in a in a global role, I would suggest SMR as an association. Uh, again, like particularly here in the U.S., I think we have a tendency to be pretty insular, and so you know, joining SMR really gives you perspectives into how people are doing research from all over the world. So that's one way, and um, you can also go to ScaleHouse.Consulting. Um, you can check out my 
my uh, my consulting practice there. And if you just add a backslash SMR, you can also check out my whole campaign platform is, is on the site as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for, for joining today. Um, uh, thank you everyone for listening in. Please rate and review us on your favorite network. And don't forget to share and our show with your friends, coworkers, and bosses. In the next episode, I'm going to be joined by Megan Kerr from PepsiCo. So don't miss the show next week. Kristen, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much again for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to see you again, Jen. All right, you too. Bye.